Please stand for the reading of the word from John 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, and the hour is coming when you will worship the, the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do and do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to have you here today. If you're visiting with us for the first time, or if it's been a while since you've been a part of our church, um, we are glad to have you here. My name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here. And uh, I want to thank you on behalf of our effort to restore Abilene for this, the generous bounty that you've offered us. Um, Becky Almanza and her team never fail to impress us uh, with how much... Uh, blessing they can give despite the amount of resources they have, but this is a good amount of work, uh, resources for them. And if you'd like to help not, uh, more, I'd like to remind you that you can show up at the end of the service. Just come down to the front, grab a few bags, take them out through the south foyer to a truck that will be waiting there. If you'd like to come back to our pantry at two uh, and help sort those things, that would be very valuable for us as well. I'm grateful for Cord and the way that he brought the word to us in John chapter 4, but today I want us to look at a little bit wider picture of the, the book of John, the gospel of John. And so I want to begin with John chapter 1, and I want us to notice what, what the apostle needs to say, needs to tell us, what he believes we need to hear about the nature of Jesus beginning in John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John, that is the Baptist, testified to him and cried out, This is the one whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We've been in this series called Radicalized, looking at the virtues of Christianity. We've been trying to identify some of those things that we hold to the center of the core of our identity and is so much so life-changing and life-transforming that it makes you a little bit strange to the people around you, like the virtues of faith. We looked at the story of Abraham and realized that faith leads us to unimaginable places, to do unfathomable things, 
that faith is more than just a checklist of acceptable beliefs, but that faith must exist with skin and bone. Faith must do and go and be. And then we looked at the virtues of hope, that the reality of God's inbreaking is so much more than just thinking, well, when I die, I get to go to heaven. But it's inbreaking now in the world, not just a future hope, but a present reality. And the kingdom of restoration is realized now, if that's true, then one of the metrics of how we're doing is unlikely friendships. That's what church should do when church is the healthiest it possibly is. When church is doing its job faithfully, what, one of the things that should come out of a church is unlikely friendships. People you never thought you'd meet. People that you'd never thought you'd be in community with. People that you love only because of the blood of Jesus. And that friendship becomes more real than you could possibly have imagined. And we're going to talk about one of those unlikely friendships today. Um, today in communion, this isn't in the script, it's probably a bad idea. Today in communion, we were passing trays and my boys have been sick for like two weeks and they're finally out of the house and they were rambunctious. And Mike had grabbed one of the, the cups and he, he dumped it all over my leg, right? And out of my bre- mouth without thinking about it was a moment that I regret. I said his name, but I said it in a way that communicated frustration. And, and that's hard. Because I want my gut reaction to my son when he makes a simple mistake to be grace-oriented. And I didn't do that. And so maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this is confession. Um, but thank God for grace that is new every morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the victory of your son Jesus, who covers all of our sins, the big ones and the little ones, and the hurt that we cause and the damage that we do, we give you praise. Father, Help me to get out of my head now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word that you might pour through me the gift of preaching that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the Highland Church says, amen. All right, let me, let me, I'm gonna try. Two things that go together perfectly. I want you to think of two things that go together perfectly and aren't really right apart. I mean, you could, they're okay on their own, but when they're together, man, that's power. What I am talking about is not some theological concept, it's chips and queso. This is Texas's gift to the world, right? Like, I mean, you could imagine coming into my kitchen and I'm just sitting there with a bowl and a spoon and it's full of queso and I'm just eating it. And that's good, but it's weird, right? Like, that's not the kind of radicalized we're talking about. It's weird. At the same time, you could imagine me just eating those corn chips one after another and they're just like breaking into shards, ruining the roof of my mouth, destroying my gums, but it's got to have queso. It's the only way it works. It's the only way it's true. Or... My favorite Halloween candy. It's the perfect blend of peanut butter and chocolate. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. 
Peanut butter is fine on its own. You can put it in a sandwich if you want to. You can eat chocolate on your own. But the, the ideal of what heaven is going to be is peanut butter, Reese's Cups. And in our church staff, we have an argument about this. I'm not going to lie. It almost came to blows. It was not a theological point. It was which size of peanut butter cup is the perfect ratio. Because the little ones have way too much chocolate. The big ones have way too much peanut butter. It is only the original size that has the perfect ratio of peanut butter to chocolate. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Well, I'm glad we settled that. In John chapter 1, what John wants to tell us is that there's two things that must be held together in tension. They're polarities. It's like a battery with a positive side and a negative side. If you want the circuit to work, they both have to be connected. You need both sides in order for the electricity to flow. Grace and truth is the glory of the Father. John wants you to understand that. Jesus representing grace and truth is the glory of the Father. They're not opposites, they're polarities, and so you must hold the ethical tension between them both. And I think most of our lives, as we try to navigate the ethical questions in a, in, from a Christ perspective, we realize that more often than not, we're trying to hold the polarity. We're trying to, trying to keep the tension between two good things. But if you want to know what God cares about, then you need to look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is passionate about, you need to look at Jesus. If you want to know the way to navigate an ethical quandary that you can't figure out on your own, then you should look to Jesus. And that brings us to John chapter 4. Here's the thing about the book of John. Like, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of know each other. They're all kind of aware of each other. A lot of scholars believe now that, that Matthew and Luke were, had, were aware of Mark enough that they were just kind of borrowing from him and riffing off of him. Sometimes they liked what he said, so they kept it. Sometimes they changed it. Sometimes they thought, yeah, that's great, Mark, but you forgot about this story, and so they added it in. John is like in his own field. He's not even talking to these guys. He has more stories that they don't even know about. They didn't even bother to include. And the two stories that we're going to look at today are two that don't show up in the other Gospels at all. But the key to understanding John is you've got to pay attention to the details. That's how you need to interpret the Gospel of John. Like, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. John includes those two words, at night. And it changes the whole context of the conversation that the two of them are going to have. And because John likes to add these details, and these details are key to interpreting, to unlocking the stories, John, the gospel, has become kind of this like safe refuge for all sorts of heretics. In fact, throughout the history of the church, if you were a heretic, more often than not, you loved John more than the other gospels because it allowed you to kind of have these wonky little crazy beliefs. But that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to the details, like this unlikely conversation under a noonday sun at the well of Jacob between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Now, it's important that it's Jacob's well. It's important that it's noon and not early in the morning. 
And the way the story unfolds, you need to know who a Samaritan is and why it matters to the conversation. A Samaritan was somebody that was born in northern Israel. In the story of Israel, there was a time when it <coughs> excuse me, was all a united kingdom. And the reign of Saul and David and Solomon were the only kings that had that united kingdom. After Solomon died, uh, the, the tribes came to his son and said, look, uh, we love that Solomon was a builder. We love that he created so many projects, but he was taxing us too high. You're not a builder, so you're going to stop the taxes, right? And his son basically said, no, and they rebelled. And so they broke into two different kingdoms. Now, The prophets would tell you that each side of this kingdom was called by God back to relevance with God. Judah in the south had Jerusalem, and so it had this kind of sense of political power and spiritual power because that was where the temple was. The northern ten tribes didn't have those things, but sure enough, because of their sinfulness and their tendency to follow idols, God raises up Assyria, comes in and conquers northern Israel and carries some of them away, leaves the people that were poor, the people that were farmers, the people that worked the land, and then Assyria brought in other people to kind of manage and, and live in that area. Now, the same thing happened to Judah. The same thing happened to, to, from the Babylonians. They would come in a couple of generations later, and they took them away as well. And we know those stories because kind of the, the narrative follows them. People like Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego they live in Babylon. But after Babylon falls to Persia, the Persian king says, well, why don't you guys all go back to Jerusalem? And so the Jews are allowed to come back to Israel, and they're allowed to rebuild the city wall, and they're allowed to rebuild the temple. And this is Ezra and Nehemiah. Those stories are also in the Old Testament. And it's at that time that you kind of wonder, well, like, what happened to northern Israel? In fact, you might hear the language in pop culture or otherwise, the, the lost tribes of Israel, well, they're talking about the northern Israelites. And what happened is easy. It's no mystery. Some of them were taken away to Syria. They were never allowed back. Others lived in that land, but foreigners came in, and and they lived there too, and they ended up getting married, and they had children and children's children. And so when, when Judah is allowed to come back to Jerusalem, they're brothers and sisters that are now awkward because they're not really Jews anymore. They're, they're something else. They're called Samaritans. In fact, the Samaritans ask, can we help you rebuild the temple? And the Jews said, nah. And that becomes a problem. That becomes the distance between those two peoples. And so Jesus is sitting down with a Samaritan, and Jews don't really talk to Samaritans. Jews are told to have nothing to do with them, don't even eat food with them. And he's a man, and she's a woman, and men and women don't talk to one another in public. Even married people don't talk to each other in public. But Jesus strikes up this conversation. It's significant that they're at the well because Jacob is the last patriarch that they share in common. Jacob is both of their ancestors. And so he asks the woman for a drink. And she says, why are you even talking to me? Who do you think you are? Don't you know who we are? 
And then Jesus has these kind of cryptic sayings. He said, well, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me for water because what I have is living water. And what is living water? Well, in the Didache, which is kind of like an early church manual, like a how-to, it describes living water as the place that you want to have a baptism. If you can have a baptism, have it in living water. If not that, then warm water. If not that, then cool water. If you can't do it anyway, do it this way. It kind of explains, like, this is how you do baptisms. And as far as we can tell, living water in the Didache, which is about 100 years after uh, this point where John's writing, it, it sounds like it's moving water. It's either water in a river or it's, it comes from a spring. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe Jesus is referencing Scripture. Jeremiah talks about the northern tribes rejecting the living water of God and digging their own wells with foreign gods, which might speak to the problem, the tension that they're facing. Zechariah 14 also talks about living water, but it's more this kind of apocalyptic vision of the future, that when God kind of comes into the fullness of his glory, the Jerusalem will have a stream, one that goes to the Mediterranean and one goes to the Dead Sea, and living water will flow out of that city. It'll be the presence of God fully revealed. It could be that Jesus is talking about moving water or talking about the sinfulness of the northern tribes or talking about the future vindication of Jerusalem Or it could be that Jesus, that Jesus is flirting. I want you to hear me out. In the ancient Near East, brides were to wash in living water. It was sort of like a baptism to prepare for the wedding. And this woman, she responds by saying, like, hey, I'll take that living water. Um, Save me from walking back and forth to this well every day. And so there's kind of three levels that Jesus is talking to this woman is. This is a very complex, complicated situation. Maybe what Jesus is asking for is a drink because he's thirsty, and that's really what he wants. Maybe what Jesus is offering is some sort of, like, subtle marriage proposal, and she's like, hey, if marrying you means I don't have to do this kind of work, I'm for it. But maybe there's a third level that Jesus is talking about because the key to John is in the details. And so Jesus says, go and get your husband. Again, if he's flirting, maybe he's just figuring out where the lay lands, lands lay. And she says, I don't have one. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're living with doesn't have the decency to marry you. Now, there's a lot of different ways to understand this. Maybe, maybe this woman is bad at being a wife. In the, in the first century, one of the rabbis had made this kind of rule that like, look, if your wife burns the toast, if she makes a terrible dinner, you can divorce her. You can just kick her out. Women had no ability to do anything, but if you didn't like how it was going, you could get rid of her. There was another rabbi that said, well, no, she actually has to perform some sort of unfaithfulness. It can't just be for any reason. But maybe she's just really bad at being a wife, and so she just keeps getting kicked out over and over Or somehow we interpret this to mean that she's a a loose woman. The other option is that she has just lived with terrible, unfortunate circumstances. That husband after husband 
after husband has died. Or maybe there's something more. Maybe Jesus isn't talking about water or husbands at all. Gary Machuda is a Catholic scholar, and he notes that in northern Israel during the settlement, the Babylonians worshipped Marduk, the people of Kuth worshipped Nergal, the people of Avea worshipped Nimbahaz and Tartik, the people of Seraphim worshipped their city gods, and the king of Hadid worshipped Anath. And the place where this Samaritan woman was worshiping wasn't Jerusalem. So maybe there's something more. What we do know is how the woman reacts to this conversation. She just leaves and goes back to the village. Josh Graves comments that she left her water jars because she forgot about why she came, and she goes to tell her people about the one that they have been looking for all their lives. Because she says, look, I know that there's going to be a Messiah, and, and that Messiah is going to answer this question about the right places to worship and the way to do it in spirit and truth. And Jesus says, I am the one you've been looking for. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of conversation or that moment where you are so excited about the result that you just like left your cell phone on the table and took off. You forgot why you were there in the first place. The first thing you did after that date was to call your mom or your dad and you said, I think I found them. I think I found the one my heart has been searching for. So maybe it's Twitter patient, or maybe it's the answer to the spiritual question that this woman has trying to been asked her entire life. And I want to tell you, the difference between new love and spiritual transcendence physiologically is pretty thin. Those are two nearly identical states. Maybe this is a marriage proposal, but it's not in the way you think it is. Fast forward a few chapters to John chapter 8. It's another very unlikely conversation, but this time it's not at a well. It's at a lynching. The Pharisees have laid a trap, and they've caught this woman, and she is guilty of adultery, but she is not the prize. Jesus is the prize. And so they throw this woman down in front of him and say, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do about this woman? She committed adultery, which even the most conservative rabbi says that's the end of it. The Torah says this is means to stone her, so we ought to kill her. So what are you going to do, Jesus? What do you say? And Jesus is in a pickle. Because if he says, yeah, follow the Torah, he's responsible for murdering a woman, killing a woman. But if he says, nah, don't do it, then he's soft on crime. He's soft on the law. And so Jesus in his wisdom, holding the polarity of grace and truth, bends down in the dirt and begins to write. Remember in the book of John, it's the details. And nobody knows what Jesus wrote. But theologians and preachers for 2,000 years, they have been guessing, they've made so much hay out of what Jesus writes but the key to the story is that he says, let any of you without sin, you be the first one. 
pick up a stone and kill her. There's a lot of reasons to kill somebody. Punishment for sin in the Old Testament. People use this story when we're talking about the polarity of grace and truth over and over and over. In the 1960s and 70s, when the Church of Christ was trying to figure out what to do with people that had been divorced, this story came up. In the conversation that we're currently having about LGBTQ folk, this story always comes up. And there's somebody that wants to lean on the grace side. And what they say is, look, what Jesus said at the end of the story, after all, the trap has been sprung and there's nothing in its jaws, Jesus looks at the woman and says, does anyone condemn you? Then neither do I. But in the same conversation, every time I've heard that been talked about, somebody else pipes up and says, yeah, but you didn't finish the story. Because he also says, go and sin no more. This isn't just a conversation that's been happening in the 20th century. This has happened in the entire breadth of Christianity. In the second and third centuries, when the church was trying to figure out what to do with people that had burned incense to Rome, to the emperor, they'd said Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus is Lord, and then the the persecution had stopped and they wanted to come back into church, and they walk into church and they see somebody else who refused to say that, and they had had their eye gouged out, or they'd had their property taken away, or they'd had their hand cut off. And they're kind of trying to have that conversation that's like, yeah, hey, I know I burnt the incense, but I'd like to come back. And somebody else is like, yeah, but my mom was killed for that. You don't just get to walk in here. I'm all for God's grace, but we got to acknowledge truth. These are polarities, and there's no simple answer. And anyone that tells you that they are either doesn't understand the question or they're trying to push an agenda that's behind it. If you fall on one side or the other, then you're going to miss the point. Grace without truth is what Charlie Seibert called sloppy agape. It's, it's like a grandparent that doesn't care what happens. They don't care about what their grandchildren do. They just want to give them more presents. They don't care about any of that. Grace without truth is flimsy and fragile. And if you make God into that picture, you make that grandparent that's just drooling on themselves. That is not the correct image of God. A family system that favors grace without truth lacks grit, and they cannot handle tough circumstances. The second thing and the conclusion of what a family system does when there's only grace and not truth is it creates enabling. And the people that you're trying to help and save through generous forgiveness, the very act that you're trying to help them is what condemns them to torment. And this happens for good reasons and for bad reasons. I think most of us have experienced going back home at Thanksgiving and you're talking to everybody's there, your whole family's there, and you've got some racist uncle that just keeps spouting off in the corner. And it's making everybody uncomfortable and nobody seems to read the room the way you're reading it. And so you go to somebody and you're like, hey, is somebody going to talk to Uncle Willie about what he's saying? Because this isn't right. And they're just like, oh, he just means well. It's sloppy agape. It's not confronting truth. Church systems that end up in sloppy agape can't stand for anything. On the other side, truth without grace just creates weaponized words. The truth will destroy you. I am not the parent that I want to be. 
and my gut reaction to a mistake that my son did. It is often cold and cruel. And most of us, we don't even need external truth tellers because we've got somebody in our voice already, somebody in our head, that, that voice that tells us those things. Family systems that have, operate with grace, truth without grace, lack joy. In those family systems, they create children who cannot flourish and they cannot grow. They are emotionally stunted and perpetually wounded. And my guess is, is as difficult as it is to manage the tension, the polarity of grace and truth, most of us grew up in a family system that tipped one far, too far one way or too far the other way. It's just where you came from. But the fullness, when we can manage that polarity as a family system or as a church system, the fullness of grace and truth is the path to flourishing. In your relationships and in your friendships, whether they're romantic or just platonic, that's the way it goes. And if you want to be a compelling witness, you have to hold the tension. If we want to be a compelling witness to this world, we have to hold the tension, the polarity of grace and truth. And let's be that church that refuses to fall so far to one side or to the other, and let's live between them just like Jesus. And if we do, if we do, we might just learn what it means to be glorifying the Father. And if we do, we might just be invited to the most unlikely wedding as the bride. Jesus wasn't just speaking to that woman. He was speaking to the Samaritans. He was speaking to all the people that just cannot get their life right, no matter how hard they try. He was offering that living water to me. He was offering it to us. Would you please stand for our benediction? Our prayer partners are going to come forward right now. They're going to be available for you. If you need prayer, someone to talk to you, uh, they'll, they'll be here for you. If it's conversation that can't happen in this room, uh, they're willing to go sit down with you with a cup of coffee on Tuesday and uh, sort this out. Our, our shepherds want to be available for you today. Let me send you out with this. The most important character trait, the most important virtue that you can hold as a Christian is courage. Courage to hold the tension of the polarity. Courage to be full of both grace and truth. So may you this week have courage to live like Jesus. May you be full of his grace, empowered by his truth, and go in peace.